Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Santiago Munoz of Newcastle United, who was born in El Paso, Texas. You can sign up now for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier starting up again this week. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that, so check it out. Before we get to Santiago Munoz, let's start with some talk about the soccer weekend with my friend Chris Whittingham, who you can hear on Univision, Paramount Plus, Inter Miami TV and Radio, and the Dan Levitard Show. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing all right, sir. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's it's been a lot this week for a, a number of reasons, um, and obviously we had. Uh, Meg Linehan and Molly Hensley Clancy on the show Friday um, talking about their transformational reporting, uh, which is still in progress of transforming the NWSL. And now we're recording this late on Sunday evening, and we recorded that on Friday morning. Since then, the commissioner, Lisa Baird, has resigned, not surprisingly, uh, the NWSL canceled all their games for the weekend, as we knew at the end of that podcast. And the NWSL has launched, announced tonight, a new executive committee that is going to be responsible for making things better. And we'll see if they can do that. That's going to include investigations, uh, reopened investigations, New investigations. Also, U.S. soccer announcing that Sally Yates, uh, who we know from Washington, D.C. fame uh, in recent years, will lead its own investigation into what has happened with the Paul Riley situation and others in the league. What's your sense at this point after everything that's happened this week? It's kind of crazy. This story only came out from Meg Linehan on Thursday. Yeah, and I, I remember when it dropped on the timeline, as it were, just how impactful it was. I was like, wait a second. Like I've I've spoken to Paul Riley multiple times this season, commentating the NWSL, and it's kind of remarkable, like how much he was hailed as a coaching figure. I just kind of understood the league better than other coaches, and was more successful than other coaches, and kind of was like really the biggest personality, in my view, from a coaching standpoint in the league, and to have it be discovered that seemed like he was a pretty despicable guy who worked in pretty despicable ways. It just, it, it, it leads you to wonder what is happening in other places. Where have investigations been mangled? Where have people been allowed to let live when they perhaps should not have been? How much is being withheld, not just within the women's game, but within the men's game as well? Just how many things happen that just get swept under the rug because it's not good for anybody to know? How many things are people taking to the grave? And I, I am kind of wondering now, you know, how much does reporting, does this reporting lead to more? And how much does it really hurt this league? And I know like this league itself is not the priority, but this league right now represents this sport on a club basis, and it's really important that club women's football grows in this country, and I'm glad that journalists and fans alike hold it to a really high standard, but I also think it might collapse under its own weight, and that sucks 
because women's professional athletes deserve to have not just a league, but a thriving league in the United States. And while it does seem like Europe is, is you know, fulfilling their end of the bargain, there should be a top drawer U.S. women's domestic league that is well run with good people in charge of it, with well-paid athletes. And it just is coming short of that standard. And it just, it, it really bums me out. It bums me out that characters like this have been allowed to survive in this game for such a long time. Protect players. It's I mean that's yeah. got to be your first priority. NWSL has not done that to a shameful degree, and there's so much work that has to be done now to to start building trust back uh, from their players. First off, first and foremost, um, and then as part of that, over time, you hope fans' trust comes back. Uh, but there's going to be so much work to be done. And I will say this, that it is disappointing to me that the new executive committee that was announced by the NWSL here on Sunday night is all white people. Uh, because another big part of the problems of the NWSL over the last couple of years has been not addressing the concerns of their black players in particular. And so this is not a good uh, step in my mind to have all white people on this executive committee. Uh, so we'll see where it goes from here. Already we're seeing players like Midge Purse tweeting, this isn't enough, uh, this executive committee just tonight. So uh, I hope the owners are responsive and I hope the owners end up being accountable. Um, and I do think it's interesting. Like, I think the people who have invested recently in the NWSL are even more valuable now. You know, uh, the new owners in Kansas City who haven't been attached to any of this stuff in the past, Angel City FC. Um, I, I think that becomes an important thing because if if you've been involved in this league in a lot for a long time, in many cases, I think you're part of the problem. So. It, where do we go from here? I, I think there's going to be a lot of news in the coming weeks and months. No doubt. And w- one of the dynamics that I thought was interesting that Meg brought up on the podcast on Friday was that at the moment, there are CBA negotiations in the NWSL. There are obviously there obviously has been the ongoing CBA negotiation with U.S. Soccer and the women's national team. And the one thing that I don't like about it is that it puts these entities at odds, right? And so the players are like seemingly always fighting with ownership. And ownership, as they do in other sports, fights back. And so like the, it is always them against us. When at the moment... As you said, it should be all about protect players. It should be all about how do we create the best environment for our players and not, well, I'll give you this and then I'll take this away from you and then I'll give you that and I'll take that away from you. Like that's how these, like the negotiations in CBAs are always one for one. I give you this and then I take that. And I just don't think that's the approach that needs to happen right now. This is not about the clubs negotiating with their players. It's about hearing and acting upon the wishes of their players to have a safe and functional work environment. And that is nothing to do with negotiating. This is purely how do we create this? How do we bring people to justice? How do we figure out the truth here and not CYAing all over the place? Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on this. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about this a lot this week, but it is the dominant story in American soccer this week. It probably will be in many ways for some time to come. Um, 
not easy to do a transition, but here we yep. try. Uh, U.S. men's national team, another story. Uh, big one this week, getting together for three more World Cup qualifiers. The roster was announced on Wednesday. Anything stand out in particular to you? Well, I mean, there, there's a couple of pieces. One, I think that you've noted a fair bit on Twitter, which is the absence of Joe Skelly, who scored at the weekend for Borussia Mönchengladbach. Um, it's just, I, I do think that U.S. fans always look, or U.S. you know, punditry in general, always are looking for a new answer, right? Especially when there were times where it's the U.S. struggled to field two good fullbacks. Serginho Dest had a bad camp. Um, I, I'm not entirely convinced by George Bellow. Uh, when you watch him play for Atlanta, I think he ends up kind of being, you know, a subject of criticism from his own teammates a fair bit. They get frustrated with his decision making in the final third and perhaps justifiably. Um, but I, I do think that there are players where you look at it and go, all right, now we're getting to a place where the U.S. has depth. All of a sudden, you bring P. and Sargent into the last camp. Neither of them make it this time. Zardes and Hoppy are preferred. Uh, you have, you know, Joe Scali who doesn't make it. You've got kind of players from all over. Um, but really, the biggest thing in terms of that will affect the on-field is no Pulisic and no Reyna. And you maybe have hopes that those two guys can join midway through the camp. At best, they're probably only playing the one game, which is the last game at home against Costa Rica. But that is the actual storyline here. But we're always looking for who's in, who's out, roster inclusions. But really, the, the talking point is, you go from having Pulisic and Reyna to not, and how do you figure out the solution in wide areas? Exactly. And Weston McKenney back in, which is a big deal because, yeah. you know, like... You weren't totally sure that he would be coming back in. You never know exactly what's been going on behind the scenes. Was he being uh, repentant enough uh, for what happened last month? And he's back. And Greg Berhalter is basically saying, let's move on. This is done. But also saying he does need to do some work to earn back the trust of his teammates. Yep. So it's... Uh, I'm curious to see if Weston McKenney says anything when he comes into camp this week to the media because he's one of the most sought after interviews typically with the U.S. men's national team. And uh, I expect he'll have something to say. We haven't really heard anything from his mouth about this topic since it happened last month. So um, with Scally, yeah, I'd love to see him in camp. I think he's done plenty to deserve a call up. I think he's. Uh, I'd rather have them than Shaq Moore or George Bellow. He can play both fullback positions and he's having a great season and he's 18, right? So like it's, that's all very promising, but it's possible to say that. And at the same time say that Joe Scali is probably about the seventh or eighth most important story about this team right now, because here's a guy who, you know, might start one or two games, but there's other stuff that's more important. And I think people lose sight of that. Sometimes when they're really rabid about uncapped teenagers who are doing what he's doing. So that's kind of my take on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're still never going to get over the newness of guys doing well at such a young age in the Bundesliga and scoring goals for like not just a bottom of the league Bundesliga team, but for a team in Mönchengladbach that's been in Champions Leagues that has expectations and he's kind of become a name where it doesn't seem like they're going to drop him anytime soon. So yeah, I get it, right? We're like, we're just not going to ever get used to, I think, having prospects that look that promising. But also, I think we've kind of accelerated the timeline of a lot of guys that's not ter terribly typical around the world. I saw there was a tweet that went viral. Well, I mean, I imagine someone verified the stats behind it, that the U.S. has the youngest average age of any national team uh, that is, has been called as yet into World Cup qualifying. So 
that actually brings me back to the McKenney thing, because I, I do want to talk about that a little bit more, which is to say that the standard that Landon Donovan held Weston McKenney to on our podcast when that happened on, in, in, a, in a clip that went viral is, you know, you can't do And I, I kind of wonder, like, how much of standard holding there is in this group because it's so young, because it wasn't really established with them. They're almost setting their own standards. Like, I, I do wonder, like, what a Christian Pulisic, what a Gio Reyna, what a Zach Stett, like, what they thought, because it does feel like the generation of athletes that is coming up is more about, you know, what like an athlete's point of view almost from a more individual like this is going to seem harsh but from a more individual standpoint from a team standpoint like I do wonder if there are characters in that locker room that pull Weston McKinney aside and not just like yeah maybe you shouldn't have done that but really have a go at him that really hold him accountable you know like I do think that Weston will fit right back into the group but I do wonder if there are those leaders and those characters that are like upholding a standard of what playing for the national team means obviously Pulisic experienced the disappointment of not qualifying but I don't know if he's like that kind of guy that's really that concerned with this team ethic and this team spirit and mentality I just don't know if there are players within this national team that actually act that way or would hold a player like Weston McKinney to that standard. Maybe Tyler Adams. You know, I think he's sort of the natural captain type, but I I have no idea if he's spoken behind the scenes to Weston McKinney uh, about this. He would be a guy I would think potentially could, but there aren't any older guys on this U.S. team who have the stature that I can think of to to have that conversation or as Alexi Lawless used to say you know hold up a guy against the wall physically and and tell him that so you know I it was a severe enough punishment missing two games getting sent home first time we've ever really seen that for bad behavior from a U.S. camp um you know that's a big deal and so that came from Greg Berhalter who by the way hasn't really said too much about how much his leadership council of players has been involved with this McKenney stuff, right? Like that would be an interesting thing to know. And, and at this point, Greg Berhalter clearly doesn't want to say much publicly about that aspect. He considers this to be in the past. So I, I do find all of that interesting for listeners. We are going to once again, after every U.S. men's World Cup qualifier, Landon Donovan, Chris, and I are going to have Instant Reaction Podcast. We're going to do that Thursday night. Uh, I'll be in Austin. Uh, Landon and Chris will be calling in, and we'll have plenty to talk about after that game against Jamaica. But just looking at these three games, Jamaica at home, Panama away, Costa Rica at home, you really want to see the U.S. win these two home games at at the very least. Get a point maybe or more in Panama. They they won on the road last month. And then you're then you're actually talking about the potential of a nine-point week, which I think is more realistic this time around. I still don't predict that will happen. But seven points would be all right. It would put the U.S. in a pretty good position. Yeah, I, I do kind of wonder in these three-match windows how much having the first game at home will be of service to the teams that have it because you don't have to get on a plane for six days, it's already hard enough flying people from all over the world to get to one place to then come to one place, settle for a day, pick it up, settle in a new place, get ready to play that game. Like That's such an accelerated time period that I do wonder if getting to play that first game at home will help. But yeah, you want to see the U.S. not just 
win against Jamaica, but kind of put in a dominant performance against Jamaica, right? As they did in the second half against Honduras, right? You want to see a team that has the ball, that takes the game to their opposition and really has a go and scores two and three goals and creates tons of chances because one of the things that we have not seen really since the group stages of the Gold Cup is a U.S. team that takes the game to their opponent in that way, right? That is dominant, right? We have not seen the U.S., from the pattern of play, from the buildup, which you know that Greg Berhalter, that's his biggest priority, right, as a as a coach, is establishing these patterns, these rhythms, these things that allow the team to score goals easily, right? He feels like it is his responsibility to give his team the platform to score goals easily, and he hasn't given it to them. And I, I imagine that has been a huge source of frustration over the course of the last several months, really, even like getting into the knockout stages of the Gold Cup. Yeah, they created some chances against Qatar, but they were also exposed at times. So how do you give your team a platform to both attack and defend and, and look dominant in a home World Cup qualifier against Jamaica? And I also think they should probably do the same against Costa Rica. As much as the U.S. fan has respect for Costa Rica... It's not the same team. It's not a new generation of players coming through. It's the same generation aging out. They have not started World Cup qualifying well. So I think you should probably expect that in Columbus as well uh, when when the U.S. entertains Costa Rica. But you want to see more attacking dominance from the U.S. than you did in the previous window. Most definitely. And let's see Tyler Adams play centrally. How about that? I think he's a much more impactful (laughs) player centrally. And yet, even his club coach, Jesse Marsh, didn't have him playing centrally the other day. Puts him central. Leipzig scores three goals after that happens. Basically, the rule now is if you move Tyler Adams centrally, your team will score three goals. We learned that against Honduras. We learned that for Leipzig. Just start him centrally. It's not that hard. I think there's some frustration, perhaps, with his lack of dynamic passing. He's a decent passer of a ball, but he just does so much for you in terms of covering ground. I would actually like to see as a combination. Him and Busio played together during this window. Now, I imagine we'll see a, a healthy amount of McKenney and Musa in front of Adams in that number six role, and they can do their fair. But I think Busio, in terms of range of passing, in terms of complementary skill set, that feels like the right combination. Adams covers for Busio's lack of running and defensive steal and Busio makes up for Adam's lack of passing range. I do kind of wonder if maybe that's a combination that can work, but I'm interested that Gianluca Busio is back in this window. He got his first goal for Venezia at the weekend, and a lot of people are tipping them to be relegated, but any, every time that I've seen them, they've been a bit more impressive than I thought than I would have thought, so uh, I, I do think that he's definitely a player I'm interested in seeing in this window. I'm curious to see how much better Buzio is than during the Gold Cup. And obviously the mm-hmm. competition's different, but he's looked good lately in Italy. I, and I'm, I'm impressed with the progress, uh, the progress he's had there. And if he can continue that with the national team, very young guy, but uh, I, I've been encouraged recently. So let's see what he brings. And, and by the way, Weston McKenney needs to play better than the, he did during the one game he played for the U.S. Yeah. down at El Salvador. So uh, guys like that, when you're not having Pulisic or Reyna, you need to get good performances out of. So we will see where it goes from here. We'll have plenty of coverage over the next 10 to 14 days of the U.S. men's national team. So follow us for all of that. I do want to talk about the Liverpool City game today because it was one of the games of the year. Just phenomenal game. Ends up 2-2. Maybe the best goal we've seen all season anywhere from Mohamed Salah just erasing a couple of very good defenders for Manchester City. Uh, They couldn't keep the lead. 
you know, and I think it's disappointing if you're a Liverpool fan that that City came back twice in this game, including after that wonderful Salah goal, and ends up getting a point from this game away. So this past week, City has played at Chelsea and at Liverpool in the league and gets four points. That's not bad. No, it's not. And you also consider in between, there's a game against PSG, uh, which they did lose. But I mean, in terms of game planning, in terms of your resources, that's stretched incredibly thin to play three incredibly difficult opponents. But in the Premier League, if you if you say Chelsea and Liverpool, and you're going to get four points from it, and you're going to look pretty good in terms of your pattern of play for large stretches of it, that's a really good outcome for Manchester City. There is always going to be the conversation about the striker situation just because I thought in the first half, Man City should have been at least a goal ahead from the pattern of play that they had. They just don't have the clinical finisher unless Kate, unless uh, Kevin De Bruyne is really firing. It was really interesting. So obviously, full disclosure, I'm a Man City fan. I was actually watching with one of my best friends who's a Liverpool fan. And at the end, we were both asking, begging for the final whistle to go because City were packing on the pressure at the end. But City also have such a bad history at Anfield that I really thought they were going to get hit for one last counterattack and one last moment of magic from Osala. I thought... From an evenness, like this is about as even as a major Premier League game can get. Both teams had to go. Both teams created chances. Both teams could both feel like they could have won, but also could have lost. James Milner was lucky to be still on the pitch. Yeah. He probably should have been sent off. Uh, and so there were all kinds of major incidents in this one. But you're right. That, that moment from Salah is probably the standout. And most particularly because... I don't think necessarily it was played that poorly by the defenders. Normally when defenders right. are sent to the ground, you go, well, what were they doing? And like I heard like some people say, oh, Laporte, what is he doing? But if Mo Salah is running at your goal, you kind of want to show him onto his right foot, right? right. And you want to show him towards a narrow angle which is exactly what he did. Yeah, he fell to the ground in doing it, but it was a narrow <laughs> angle, and Mo Salah pulled off an incredible finish with his weaker foot, which he almost never does. And so fair play. I think that's like a moment where you just like tip your cap and go, all right, Mo Salah is one of the greatest players of the current moment, and if he keeps doing this of all time. So fair enough, man. Go ahead. It's a little, I mean, like, like that play at the end of the game when Fabinho was in on goal, and... But you can't fault Fabinho for not hitting it first time. It just wasn't possible for him to hit it first time. And yeah. was it Ro Rodri who makes the play to clear? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just a, I, I pulled my groin watching it, but like, <laughs> like just an, a phenomenal play. Just like respect the phenomenal play. That one was defensive. Mohamed Salaz was attacking. But this game was so much fun. When these two teams play, it's almost always memorable and i wish they would have a chance to play more often you know who knows maybe later in the champions league they'll come up against each other in the elimination rounds but um i get an excitement from watching liverpool and city play and maybe it's because you know how these teams are going to match up against each other and and it's very yin and yang but it's not like when you're seeing Chelsea involved in a game or Manchester United and you know there's a decent chance that it's not going to feel like a memorable game in the way that a Liverpool City game 
tends to these days. Yeah, I actually I think that that's largely to do with Liverpool. I think Liverpool will probably play the most in- entertaining games amongst high level teams because even City sometimes is capable of playing a nil nil as they did I think at home against Chelsea a year ago. Um, I, I think Chelsea might have nicked a late goal, but that game felt like a nil nil all the way. Whereas even at halftime of this game, when it was nil nil, you're going, Phew, that was a lot happened there. And you're so right about the stylistic clash. That's what makes this game is that particularly at home, Liverpool go flying forward, they press you, City were kind of suffering the game in the first 10 minutes, and I'm looking at, like, I, I just look at my friends and go, this is every City game away at Anfield that I've watched since I started following this team, right? Like, it's every time City go there and look like they can't connect three passes together, but then they grow into the game, and I thought they were pretty good for large stretches of it. It's probably as good as I've seen City play at Anfield, and so I, I do think that this game because of the stylistic clash, is actually probably the game on the footballing calendar. From a pure, just watching a game entertainment standpoint, that is the best in the world, right? People obviously can you know, talk about El Clasico. There was a River Boca today, uh, which River won by two goals to one. Um, like, there's way more intense rivalries that mean a lot more. But in terms of high-level teams playing great games against each other, I don't think there's a better one in the world. It reminds me a little bit of the Manchester United Arsenal games when it was Patrick Vieira against Roy Keane and everybody else too, right? But like there was a real, there was a probably more venom in that one, <laughs> but but there was a real sense of occasion every time those two teams met and it was just part of the the era, I think. And those two teams were just such important teams in that era. And I feel like Liverpool and City fit that description for this era pretty well. But um, I will give some credit, I think, to Liverpool because they're not as rich as City or PSG or even Chelsea. And we noticed that when Virgil van Dijk gets injured last season... And they go into the tank. So there's not as much of a margin for error. But Liverpool, when it has its guys, despite not having as much money, and, and look, it's all relative, right? They're still pretty wealthy owners. Yeah. But but Liverpool can still compete at the very highest level. I think they can win the league. They just have less of a margin for error. Yeah. And I, I, I still think that they're capable of summoning the best performance, I think, of any team in the world probably on their day when they're at home and they've got that crowd behind them like that's as good of a performance as you can see from any team on any given day but I think it happens a little bit less often and I think this core of incredible players is just that slightest bit different right Firmino is not really a part of it as much anymore today Diego Jota started up front but even the players that have provided cover right Curtis Jones is in that midfield today James Milner filled in for an injured Alexander Arnold at right back they did a job, right? Milner should have been sent off, but they did a job and and they were decent players. You just wonder because they like to nail signings like they did for Mane and for Salah for players who were not the most coveted at the time. Yeah, Sadio Mane's move to Liverpool was inevitable because he was a great player at Southampton and that's what great players at Southampton do is move to Liverpool. Um, but, you know, Mo Salah did not do well at Chelsea, recovered his reputation in Italy and then got a move but no one expected him to take off like this and so to strike goal like that again on a pair of signings is going to be really hard so I do kind of wonder when it comes time to replenish and eventually replace those guys do they have the ability to do so and kind of build a similar kind of team Liverpool by the way the only team that has not lost yet Hmm. in the Premier League this season which is 
interesting, but it's it's more about getting the win. So uh, heading into the international break, they're going to have a couple weeks off. You and I are going to be back a lot for these U.S. games with Landon Donovan. So everyone out there should check out those shows. As always, Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Santiago Munoz. Our guest now is Santiago Munoz. He's a 19-year-old forward born in El Paso, Texas, who recently joined Newcastle United on an 18-month loan from Mexico's Santos Laguna. Munoz scored the goal of the tournament in the 2019 Under-17 World Cup for Mexico, which finished second in that tournament behind Brazil. Munoz is an ambassador and alum of Alianza de Football, long one of the top Hispanic soccer platforms in North America. Santi, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to to be here and and talk about my life and all my career. Fantastic. There is a lot to talk about, but first off, I know you're with Alianza de Football, which is part of Four Soccer Ventures, and they've just announced a new event called the EA Sports E-Alianza Cup. Could you describe what the event is? Yes, I'm very happy like to be announced in, in this project of, of EA Sports for the invitation that, that Alianza gave to me. Like I always say, I'm very proud to be in, in this project, to be an example for for all the, the young kids that, that is in, in my city, all the Latinos in the United States and in Mexico. So, like I said, for me, it's also it's a dream, and I'm very happy to be an example for that kids that, that want to, to have dreams like, like I'm, I'm doing. Could you describe your story a little bit with Alianza de Football and how old you were when you went through it and, and what that experience was like? I was 15 years old when I, it was the 217, when I go to, to the triad there in, in Alianza, in El Paso, Texas. There is from that start all the, the thing, all the fabulous thing that I, honestly, my, my life changes from that moment that, that I go to, to Alianza. So I go to the showcase in, in, Los, in Los Angeles. It's a opportunity for, for all the, the boys that have dreams. Really, uh, I think that I'm an example. I can tell you that the dreams come true. So I'm like, I tell you, my life changes from Los Angeles. There is where it was all the, the scouts from Mexico, from United States. Uh, it was something spectacular when you just step uh, down the airplane to being in, in Los Angeles, they trade you like a professional player. That was my, my first experience, like being a professional. It was to motivate that, that five days that, that I was in, in Los Angeles. And from there is, is my first step to to go to, to Santo Laguna in, in Torreón. What was your experience like uh, at Santos? Uh, I've, I've been to Torreón. It's, uh, it's a very good soccer, football city, and, and obviously a very good club. Yes, when I go to, to Torreón, I really like the city. I like the, the people from, from there. And like I, I, in that moment, I speak with my family and we take the decision to, to go there. Uh, it's a, a very good team. It's a, a club that, that helps you in, in the field. 
and also outside the field to be a, a, a good professional and also to be a, a good person that I think that is the most important. First, we are persons and then we are professional players. So that was something that, that was very important for me, for my family, because in that moment I was young and all the, the to finish my, my education there in, in Club Santos. And like there is this a good family, that club, and a lot of, of good things passed for me. Recently, we had the Santos owner, Alejandro Iraragori, on our show, and, and he was a really interesting guy to speak to, uh, also owns Atlas. Um, you're from El Paso, Texas. How many years did you live in El Paso, and, and how would you describe the football culture in El Paso? I was born in, in El Paso, Texas, but I all my life I have been living in, in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And my family is, is over there. I studied some years in El Paso, Texas. I studied like three years, uh, some of the high school and all that. So also my brother, my, my, my sister is too, too normal to, to be studying over there. And also we play. My brother and I played from Little uh, in El Paso and also in Mexico. And I really like, uh, I like a lot to, to have that opportunity to, to play in both sides. And, and the football in in United States, uh, I think is, is, is very good. It's, it's different from Mexico, but I think it's, it's very good. Um, like I said, it's different, but, but it's, it's well. For our listeners who don't know the geography, El Paso, Texas is on the United States side of the border and La Frontera, and Ciudad Juarez is right across the border on the Mexico side. And it's, it's all pretty connected, it seems like. I wanted to ask you about Ricardo Pepe is a, a player for the USA who we just had on our podcast. He just scored for USA. He's from El Paso. And he is about the same age as you. I think he's 18, you're 19. Did you have any contact with Ricardo Pepe over the years? Yes, yes, I, I, I know him. I, I have a good relationship with, with him. With, with, I know also his family and, and he knows mine. Um, we play together in, in El Paso. And it's, for me, it's, I'm too happy to, to see players, players from from where I was, uh, being a, a professional players. So yes, we, we, we have a, a good relationship. We play together in, in some youth teams in, in El Paso. You've played for Mexico at the youth level, including at the under 17 World Cup. Is your preference right now to play at the senior level for Mexico or for the United States? Uh, this I prefer to say this uh, in in Spanish. So, okay. Ahora con esta pregunta, yo creo que que la la he explicado y, y he hablado mucho de eso. Ahora sí que yo estoy muy contento en en la selección mexicana desde el momento en que llegué y y para mí es es un orgullo es es un honor el 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 que pueda ser considerado el que me tomen en cuenta para para ambas selecciones. En verdad eh, me llena mucho de orgullo y pero yo siempre lo dije que, que desde que llegué ahí a, a la selección de México me, me han tratado muy bien, me han dado un trato a mí, a mi familia eh, espectacular. Entonces ahorita estoy muy cómodo ahí 
Y bueno, ahora sí que eh, lo, lo del futuro yo se lo dejo a manos de Dios, pero va hablando del presente, estoy muy a gusto y, y, y ahorita pues ahí es donde, donde estaré. Here's the English translation. With this question, I believe I've explained a lot and said a lot about this. Now I'm very content with the Mexican national team from the moment that I arrived. For me, it's a point of pride, an honor for me to be taken into consideration for both national teams. But I have always said since I arrived to the Mexican national team, they have treated me very well, like a family. It's spectacular. So I'm very comfortable there. I'll leave the future in God's hands, but speaking in the present, Mexico is where I will be. In terms of, I guess, Newcastle, I want to I wanna ask you about Newcastle. You, you, you went there fairly recently. Uh, how would you describe the experience so far that you've had at Newcastle? Yes, like you say, I I arrived here uh, like I think two weeks or 15 days ago, and I'm very happy. I'm very very happy. It's a it's something that is fabulous. It's, it's the club is very good. All the the persons in the club. Uh, All of, of the people over here, the city, I, I really like it. Um, I already uh, go out and walk from to some places uh, here, but to the stadium also is a historical stadium, a historical club, and I'm very happy right now. I'm I'm working hard. I'm trying to to my first um, my first like months here can be quicker to so I can getting to all the group. So, so I'm working hard and, and I'm very happy. How is it going to work? Like who, what, what teams are you training with right now at Newcastle? I, I know you're just starting there. Um, yeah. And, and, and what do you hope to achieve at Newcastle? Yeah. I, right now I'm, I'm training. They are, they are training me separate to, to get some, all the, The physical, all, all, all the, all that I'm, I'm training separate. Um, they are, they are uh, talking with me every day, how I am, uh, how is the, the work uh, for me. So right now I'm, I'm like I say, I, I'm working for that and to be uh, the most, the most quicker to be part of the group. And I'll, I know that I'm gonna be first. Uh, playing and, and knowing all my players and all that with the U23, but but my goal is to to get here uh, acoplarme quicker and mm -hmm. and have a a opportunity to to be with the first team. I really like Newcastle as a city. I, I went there for the Olympics in in 2012 uh, when Mexico won the gold medal. And uh, the stadium is great. It's in the, the center of the city. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun city, actually. Like, from a living perspective, how is the adjustment going for you? Is it, is it a big adjustment to move from Mexico to Newcastle in England? Yes, it's, 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 it's difficult because mm, all the, the difference of hours, my family is... is He's in Mexico, all my friends, all my people. But it's something that that I want from when I was little. So this is a dream that I that I wanna I do it. Um, I'm like I tell you, I'm very motivated. I my mentality is to to be here to uh, this opportunity 
take it the best way. And then, like I say, you, I, I have my family back back of me, help me in in all the things that that I need. So so I have the mentality to to work, and I know it's it's difficult to to be here alone, but but I I want that do not be so difficult. A lot of people noticed that you have nearly the exact same name as the Mexican-American player in the goal films. And that player signed with Newcastle United. And it's kind of a crazy coincidence. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about it? Yes, I, I remember when, when I was little, my my brother and me loves that that movie. We see it a lot of times. And I remember that is... Uh, when I was little, I it was a very motivate movie for me, and right now also is a motivate movie. Uh, I think that it's a it's a dream. So I like like my dream come true. I want to to be an example for for all the the kids, for all the players that that have dreams. So just to to have a good mentality to work. To work a lot and and yes like it's very uh, I don't know like uh, to see that it's too parecido to the to the movie is something <laughs> yeah. very, very, very <laughs> Santiago Munoz is a 19 year old Ford from El Paso Texas and Ciudad Juarez who recently joined Newcastle United on a loan from Mexico's Santos Laguna Really appreciate you coming on the show, Santiago. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to, to be here. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Santiago Munoz, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including a big feature on Jesse Marsh and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that. See you next time.